Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Um, it is the 30th of January. I'm here with Tammy. Tammy and I are going to talk this episode about what happened in Memphis um, with, I don't know, everything around the killing of uh, Tyree Nichols. And um, I wanted to introduce like a format that we're going to do it in today. I don't know. I think it might add a little bit of direction to the conversation because I know that there's so many different types of conversations that are happening right now around this uh, this thing. So, Tammy, how are you doing? I'm okay. It's good to see you, Jay. It's been a really crazy couple of news weeks. I don't know. I'm tired. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I I wanted to start here at the beginning, right? And not at the beginning from, like, the incident itself, right? We can talk about that in a second here. But I wanted to ask you a question, um, which was that, like, on Friday and on Thursday, right? Thursday and Friday, I would say, mm-hmm. uh, of last week, we started seeing a whole lot of chatter about this video that was going to be released. And it was released in the same way that like, I don't know, a company releases like a layoff timing wise, right? Like Friday news. The bad quarterly earnings report. Right, right. Now, I don't like that obviously was intentional. They could have released this at any point. But we also saw like a kind of chorus of people line up right? Including like people who work at the FBI, right? Law enforcement officials, the police chief of, of Memphis, right? Um, Mm -hmm. All come out and say, this is terrible. What you're going to see is horrible. These officers have been charged. They've been fired from the force um, and they've been arrested. And what you're going to see is really bad, right? Mm -hmm. Now there is some precedent for this. I remember this happening in a couple of their occasions right like where a video was going to be released by a police department yeah but i never really saw it to this degree and even joe biden right came out and was like did his usual like please be peaceful type of song and dance i don't know if joe biden had seen the video or not but like i imagine he probably had seen at least you know some of the stuff that is the condensed version right he got the briefing yeah right what do you think about that? You know, like, what do you think about this idea that now there is this almost rehearsed song and dance that everybody does, right? And I think that it doesn't take much of a cynic to understand why they're doing that, right? Like, they're doing it to reduce what they think is going to be like a rioting situation or something Definitely. like that, right? Yeah. Um, that it almost feels like they're preparing the public. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, it kind of reminded me, I think the closest thing in my memory was the Laquan McDonald tape in Chicago. Right. That was kind of released under different circumstances where, if I remember correctly, it was through litigation around a public information request that they filed. Right, right. Journalists had sued to get it, yeah. Right, yeah. And I was thinking with, with this particular tape that if I were like a film studies person or something, I would have thoughts about like all of this discourse for now a decade that we've had around police body cams and like how we had this anticipation, or at least that was the argument that they would lead to this kind of accountability and that there would be some sort of like, I guess like spontaneity in that. And that like, basically there would be like an immediacy around this happens. We immediately know what happened through the release of the tape. And then we can react as citizens, like in our society, you know, there would be this loop. And I think this really is one of these cases where it actually shows like, no, all of this stuff is incredibly mediated. And like, because the police body cams are in the control of the police and the authorities, like 
all of our reactions are also basically like under their control to some extent. And they're trying to, you know, prevent another kind of George Floyd situation where, you know, we react the way that we want to react. And so everyone is sort of like, it's now with all of these days of lead up, if you react violent, quote unquote, violently, or in some sort of forceful way, you're already sort of criminalized in and of yourself in reacting to this. Right, 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 right. So yeah, I guess I've been thinking a lot about like mediation and the ways that like this promise that we had around body cams, you know, and, and that, you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but increasingly it feels like it doesn't is like, it's not actually ours. It's not actually under our control. It actually doesn't always help us with accountability or even just like our physical reactions to things. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things pop to mind here. The first is like, I think that there is an argument to be made that in the old days, right. Um, that before body cams, yeah. And nobody would even think to request this footage. It's not like Rodney King where somebody passing by just films it, right? Right. And of their own accord can do this. The police now, you know, there's a, I wrote about this. There's a case now in San Francisco that the ACLU and the EFF are involved in where the San Francisco Police Department just wants to like commandeer these thousands and thousands of cameras that some cryptocurrency founder put up all throughout San Francisco. And he also, they also want to get into people's ring ring and nest cameras and personal videos so that they can create this gigantic surveillance net. And that the idea is that if they use this surveillance net, then they can find like whatever groups of kids are like breaking into stores or something Mm -hmm. like that into San Francisco. Right. Um, and that there's a public safety angle to all of that, but, is there an argument to be made that in terms of what accountability might mean that like there, that maybe the system did work? I'm not making this argument. I'm just sort of making, you know, yeah, yeah. in the, for the purpose of this conversation that if people didn't know to ask for the body cam footage, Mm -hmm. right. If they knew that the body cam footage should be there, then no one would have heard of Tyree Nichols. You know, they would have lied about it, which they tried to do initially anyway, the Memphis police department. Maybe they would have gotten that surveillance photo that shows like the most, I mean, it's like unspeakable, the level of sadism and like violence that, you know, these guys just beating on a guy while he's handcuffed and held I up. Didn't, like, I have to say I didn't watch the video, but I know you did, yeah. right? Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, we can talk about it in a bit, but you know, yeah. it is a sickening level of like, you know, when the, when the people are saying this is one of the worst things, like it really was, um, yeah. that that surveillance camera like never, maybe the police probably might've gotten it to like, to suppress it. You know? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That there is like some more accountability because of this, even if the way in which it's engineered yeah, is like to ultimately stop any type of political protest. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I think, so I was, I was thinking like this week, like on balance, like, do I think the stuff that we like, I, I, I always consider body cams like a win of the first wave of Black Lives Matter. I think we have to say that, right? Right. This is definitely, it was always like one of the accountability things on Black Lives Matter's agenda. Like I certainly, and I think like obviously more sophisticated activists always knew that it was going to be an imperfect solution. So yes, I do think that there, it has led to like a level of transparency in certain cases. But I think also like it's, it's just very hard to know 
whether you're always getting what you think you're getting from the authorities, you know, and that, and whether you're getting complete footage and like also the angles of the footage and everything. And then I think for this week, the thing that's just on my mind is it exactly what you're saying with the engineering of emotions, like that, you know, there's almost this entire package that a thing can be released into. Right. But yeah, on balance, like, yes, like, yeah. It sounds like they called McKinsey, right? And they're just like, hey, get some like 25-year-old Rhodes Scholar to come in and tell us how we should do like a media push around this type of thing so that people don't riot. It really felt like that, right? The people that they had lined up, it was almost like a PR campaign around this. Um, And the message was all the same, right? The message was, what you're going to see is bad, but don't get so mad that you go out and you riot. You know, protest peacefully if you're going to protest. And I think in some ways it might have worked, right? Like, because we didn't see the the sort of scale of protest. Now, that might have to do for a lot of reasons, right? Like, it might have to do with the fact, I mean, I think the number one thing is that the officers are right now, I think, right? Like, unless they're out on bail, like, they're, they've been arrested and yeah. um, they've been charged. And I think that one of the things post-Floyd now is that I think that if you're being somewhat reasonable about it and from a odds perspective or whatever it seems like a horrible way to describe it like i would expect these officers are gonna go to jail you know like um i find it very hard to believe that Mm. they won't given the response and the speed with which they're placed there and i think that um okay may is telling me that they're all out on bail but um you know they've they've been charged and they've been arrested Mm -hmm. and so uh the main ask right which is like put this person away accountability. yeah accountability has sort of been taken care of i also just think that we're in like a different place here in 2023 than we were in 2020 it's definitely, but i think the other thing was i wondered what you thought about this like the nichols family themselves with their attorney right. were kind of roped into this talking point as well right. and, and that happens maybe, a lot and maybe lot. they wanted to do that but there right. was something kind of tragic in watching this mother whose son was literally calling out to her you know, right. a few hundred yards from their home when he was beaten to death, having to say, like, let's be peaceful about this. Right. You know, I, right. it was like really emotional to watch that. And yeah. And I th- and as you say, like, this is often the case that the victim kind of lines up with the authorities, like in the interest of prosecution. Right. And they also, um, but, I think, are yeah. in like a state of shock. And I think that, for sure. you know, for them, like, it makes sense. Like, they're sort of told, hey, can you please do this for us? You know? Yeah. And then there's this sort of illusion that the will of the parent is somehow meaningful to the people who are protesting when in a lot of ways totally, it's not. Yeah. And I don't know if yeah. it should be because, you know, I am. But it's emotionally, it definitely, be. right? Right, like, right, right. Yeah. Um, there was, I think I talked about this on the show before, but in Ferguson, you know, um, like both Mike Brown's parents were you know, used for every type of agenda for for years, right? And yeah. some of it was on their own volition and some of it, you know, was because they were told something. And, you know, remember there was the fight, the mothers of, remember the people who went up on stage with Hillary Clinton, right? Yes. And, um, oh gosh, that was Eric Garner's daughter really opposed that. And like right. the, the stuff around the family is so tragic and like mm-hmm. they do get roped, I think, into these types of situations. Now, I don't want to speculate about what Tyra right. Nichols' parents actually felt or didn't feel. Yeah. But, um, but you know, like, but this, the optics of it, you know, like, this song and dance, I think, is, you know, I don't know, I don't want to be too theoretical about it, but it's obviously part of the state response now 
Definitely. And, um, it is like a lot of hand holding and a lot of, I can't believe we did this. Meanwhile, nobody who has a brain finds this surprising at all. You know, like seriously, like, of course this happened, right? Like it happens all the time. And if he hadn't died and he'd just been beaten in that way, right? If you had banned it through, nobody would know anything about it. It doesn't, you know, him dying is extremely tragic. Like the violence that they were sort of, you know, like placing upon him is abhorrent regardless of whether, like, whether whether he lived or died, you know? And, you know, like it is, it is a strange like calculus that we're in right now. Mm-hmm. And I just found the personally, that whole thing, knowing that they're trying to manipulate me into not mm-hmm. having, mm-hmm. To, into having a specific reaction, which would be something like, you know, like quiet remorse or something like that. Yeah. I just found it, like, I was just so resistant to it. You know, I just yeah. found it disgusting the entire time. But what did you do with that? Cause it's also, I felt like that too. And then, and but, you know, I definitely was not, like, organizing a protest in my community. Like, I was kind of looking for stuff. I was out of town from New York, and there wasn't anything. And I don't know. But I, yeah, I guess I felt helpless and defeated in some sense by that. But that I could have done something probably. I don't know. I don't know. I, I just, like, there's so much these days where every response is like, oh, well, this just confirms everything about America mm-hmm. that's fucked up similar to Monterey Park or whatever, right? Where you yeah. just feel kind of like stuck. Um, I didn't feel quite so stuck about this, right? I think it reaffirmed a lot of the beliefs that I had about policing. Um, and then you learn more about these elite units. Um, yeah. You know, like Scorpion is the one that was called in Memphis. But um, I don't know, you know, it took about a, at the beginning, honestly, I, I really do feel like I was just kind of like, I don't know. It's disgusted. You know, I think everybody was when you, if you watch it, right. Like it's like a physical disgust that you should feel. And I think that whatever comes out of it is, you know, too early to tell right now. But I think that every time there is something like this and the response becomes more uniform, like I think that it is at least interesting in terms of trying to mark any type of progress. Like, do I think that Mm. sadist cops aren't going to act in sadist ways now right but is it you know 10 years ago would these five officers have been charged no yeah 10 years ago would every uh politician even like from the right or whatever just say wow that's bad no right now but what does that progress mean i i don't know (laughs) yeah i know (laughs) i really don't know but yeah, it's upsetting. Okay, so um, we're going to switch back and forth. So Tammy, what, yeah. is, what is your first question? Here? So my question to you very much on that point is like about the charging of these officers. So Memphis is like a 65% black town. The police chief is black. And these five officers are black who have been charged with second degree murder. Um, the sixth officer is white. So far, that has been disciplined in some capacity, but the white guy apparently was not on the scene of the beating itself and has been placed on administrative leave, but not fired or charged. Right. And I'm curious what you think about, you know, the function of race in the charging of these officers. Um, there's two black public defenders who I was following this week, one of them I know from law school, and they were very much like, this is this shows that our society is racist because only the black officers were charged in many other 
instances where a police has committed a killing and the police officer is white, there isn't charges. And so they're, they're not necessarily saying that they're upset about these guys being charged like on a structural level of like police versus the citizenry, but they're saying that there's a racial dimension and that that also needs to be interrogated. Um, I found myself sitting with like their comments, like, and feeling really, really uncomfortable. And I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah. (laughs) It Um, is a take, but they're also, yeah, they're public defenders. So I think they're also making some sort of argument about defendants' rights. So anyway, curious about the race. I think public defenders who are, a lot of public defenders who work in the system are mostly laser focused on how racism works within the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And I think that to have a comprehensive critique of it, you can't say good guys and bad guys, right? Because a lot of the people they defend are bad guys, right? Like, right? Like, I mean, yeah. a lot of the people are guilty. It's not like everybody is innocent, but that there needs to be for the criminal justice system to not be racist, right? Then there needs to be, um, it can't just be like the good guys get off, right? Like, this is one of the weird things with, like, for example, like death penalty work, right? Where they just say, well, we'll just free the innocent ones that were racistly put <laughs> right. there, right? Like, um, the question is whether or not some of the guilty ones who were put there wouldn't have been put on death row if they, if they were white. Um, the argument is very similar to the one that the Asian American, uh, or Chinese American, Asian American protest groups used about, uh, Peter Liang and Akai Mm -hmm. Gurley, right? Like their argument was basically like, why does the Asian cop, why is he the only one that's ever charged right right? in the history of the NYPD? And when, you know, it was an accident, right? Like, or that's their argument, right? Like it was an accident and you know, there are much worse things and he's the one that gets charged. Mm -hmm. It's an extremely uncomfortable uh, conversation. I don't really know what the counterfactuals would be because we Mm -hmm. are in a new, because I do think that we are in like a different time space and then we were 10 years ago. Yeah. In terms of this. Um, I think, 10 years ago, no cop ever gets charged, right? Yeah. And um, so it's hard to make, to like even come up with like what the other alternative would right. be. I don't know. What do you think about it? I don't know. I mean, I think I was initially feeling really upset about that take and feeling like, now, wait a minute, like each time a cop kills someone and we're able to charge that cop and, you know, all of like with the caveat of like all the stuff around the criminal justice system, like we're basically like talking about this, like, you know, this Russian doll nested doll of like injustices, but um, that all of these charges are in and arrests are in fact, like victories of our movement on some level. Also, like if we're speaking structurally that charging a cop is not actually like charging a regular defendant. You know, that cops are somehow qualitatively different because of the power that they have, because of they are like the peace, you know, quote unquote, peacekeepers of our state. Like they are entrusted with everything. They have every protection. Like it's not the same as some random dude who is in fact guilty of murder or whatever. Right. So um, I and, and I don't know. I mean, I think like structurally, what is the analysis supposed to be like? Is it really all supposed to be through a racial lens or is it or should we be more focused on the fact that these are people in positions of power who can use every brutality of the state against normal people? And therefore, each time we're able to hold them accountable. In fact, that should be considered a victory, regardless of what their race is. Like, are you transformed out of your race kind of mattering as an you know, essentially, like if you become a cop, I think is the thing that I don't, you know, I'm, 
I'm feeling, I guess I like naturally feel more of the structural piece than this kind of like race piece. Not that race isn't structural, but this power analysis to me seems to predominate, but I, but I understand like, you know, there's something compelling about the race argument. Like, yes, you know, I'm sure there probably are more officers who aren't white who are charged than officers who are white. I, know, the, well, I don't know what to do with would, that. <laughs> the first thing I would say is like, good luck finding an audience for that argument, yeah. you know? But at the All same right. time, I think that if you, are a, <laughs> if you are a public defender, then you have to make that argument. You know, I don't think they actually even have a choice about it because if it is true or if they believe it to be true, right, then it is another example of even the most heinous people um, deserve like a criminal justice system that's not racist, right? And that um, you are supposed to, as your job, root it out in all in all places, right? And that you can't be selective <sighs> about know. it. But also, <laughs> yeah. like one of the, th- but also it's part of like the whole the whole like ideology of public defense is that like you can't really match the resources of the state. You know, and that's why you are a zealous public defender, because like the state is throwing everything against your client. But when the client is, in fact, the state, like, I just think this stuff gets really muddied. And I don't, you know, and I think some of this is also gets um, sorted out, like in discussions of should cops unions be part of the labor movement? Like, in some ways, that's also this parallel of like, well, isn't there something like qualitatively different about being a cop that actually makes some of these analyses like different? Um, and I don't, yeah, I don't know. I think it's yeah. really hard. I don't know. But then you would have to essentially argue for like, like let's say you're an abolition. I don't want to get too caught up in these theory- hypotheticals, right? Like I'm <laughs> no. going to just pose one more for you, right? Like All how right. does this work within an abolitionist framing then? Right? I like, think exactly. That's yeah. all. That's really, because I think that this, what they're making is essentially an abolitionist argument. Basically, right? that yeah. the, this, is, this is actually another example of the system being racist and that, that we shouldn't rely upon the criminal justice system to present these types of outcomes. And if you are a true abolitionist and the last thing you should be rooting for is basically like a system that only works when it's cops. (laughs) Right. Like, Hey, let's abolish criminal justice system except when it's cops, you know? Um, (laughs) Well, the cops wouldn't exist. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's a little bit, we're a bit in the weeds. But yeah, I um, know, I know. No, I, I think that's right. Like there, there's a consistency to that argument, and yet I, I'm just sitting with it, like very uncomfortable. Oh yeah, no. Listen, it's a <laughs> it like yeah. that's not a take I would write, for example. Like, um, <laughs> and I think that uh, you know, I think that it, in some way, I don't think that it's meant to be this way, but in some ways, it, it like you know, like give it a little bit of time before you before bit, you drop yeah. that one. Do you know what I mean? Like, I kind I of, maybe know. that's part of what I was feeling. Yeah. Right. Like there's always this. But thing also, like, yeah. There are I like mean... Monday takes and then there are Thursday takes. <laughs> right. That one's a Thursday take. You know, like you don't have to do it like right on the, on the, when people are feeling traumatized. Um, now, do I like, do I like theoretically disagree with that argument? No, I don't. I theoretically yeah. agree with that argument. You yeah, know? yeah. But, um, okay. But I don't even know if I even, like, I would assume that if the officers were white, that it would have been handled a lot differently. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Now, do I know that for sure? I don't know. You know, I'm not in the Memphis police department, nor do I know much about them outside of what I've read in the past week, you know? So, um, but um, well, uh, there's another way in which like race becomes 
you know, oh, that yeah. I think we should talk about without, let's not get too deep into like whatever meta meta conversation about this yeah. that is going on. But mm-hmm. I mean, what, like, what, what do you think the proper response could be, right? Because so long, um, for a while, we've sort of had this conversation be centered around this idea of like white supremacy, right? <laughs> now, I don't think that that is ne- negated because of the fact that the officers are black, right? Mm-hmm. I personally don't feel that way. However, I do think it makes it harder to make a compelling Do you want to just explain why, why you don't think that is the case? Because I think other people may be like, well, why not? Because they're black, so... They don't oh yeah well, to that I mean I think that the idea yeah. that there are that police are trained in a way to to you know brutalize black suspects I don't even know what you right. call it at this point you know um or people that they encounter to have a higher level of suspicion yeah to like say that they fear for their lives more right like all like I I, I don't think that that has any type of racial barrier in how you're doing it because you're a cop and you've been trained that way. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And it is part of the culture of the police force, especially in places that have large black populations, right. To respond that way. Right. right. Especially heavily segregated places. Right. Um, like most Southern cities or even most Northern cities. Right. Mm-hmm. Like there are ways you act in some neighborhoods and there are ways that police For act sure. in other neighborhoods. Right. Like, in some neighborhoods, they have no suspicion of anyone at all. They would never pull a gun on somebody, right? And in some, totally. they'll if, if they pull you over for a busted taillight, they'll they'll pull a gun on you, you know. And that uh, that the fact that the idea that none of that now you can call whatever you want, right? But it is like a racist system of policing. The act that the fact that like none of that was involved is ludicrous for me to think about, right? Right. Um. Now, for some reason, like the idea, and I think that this is done by some engineering, right, both by like Democrats and Republicans, but I don't know, maybe mostly Democrats at this point, right, that um, that it is an interpersonal thing, right, that it is the white person hating the black person and trying and killing mm-hmm. the black person out of yeah. personal enmity. That's how people are processing. I think that's silly. But it also makes me think like maybe there needs to be a different way to talk about it if that's how every a lot of people are processing it. Because like I think if you explain the other thing the way that like not, you know, better than I just explained it. But if you explain that idea, I think a lot of people will understand it, you know. But when you say this is white supremacy culture, then they start to think about it in terms of interpersonal relationships, even though like, you know, the whole term is meant to not to be. Right. To specifically say this is not about interpersonal relationships, they still think about it as such, you know? Yeah. Remember um, some months ago when we talked about that essay in Descent that Barbara Fields co-wrote about the death of a white woman by cops? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, she was making a kind of Barbara Fieldsian argument around, you know, we shouldn't just talk about white supremacy in policing and, you know, yes, Black Lives Matter, but it's also just this structural thing about the state. Right. Right. And the way that state uses violence. And is there a different word phrase than white supremacy that gets at that? I don't. That makes that more clear. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think that appealing to people at a level where you just say all these, you know, uh, this 2022, I think was the most, uh, it was a record high in people that are killed by the police. Right. So it's not like people are, it's not like the cops are chilling out or anything. Um, I do think that when there is kind of a, this one counts, this one doesn't count, this one doesn't, you know, like, I don't think people really think that way, but certainly mm-hmm. in their coverage, 
I do think it reinforces this idea that uh, the race of the people matter interpersonally, right? I think it does. Um, And that if you see Derek Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck, like then that's like, it's not just a metaphor at that point. It is like, oh, this person hates this person and is killing them. And so then people process it that way. Now, that's not the fault of the people who are making these arguments. I think that's just the way that it's been presented. And that's the way that people have taken it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't know. I mean, I think that these killings are, they do spark a emotional cord. That's why we have millions of people out in the streets two years ago, right? Um, And I do think that not talking about or giving less credence to the instances where the victims are not are not black i don't know i I don't i don't quite know why that has happened Mm -hmm. right but i think that it has probably contributed in some small portion to the interpersonal part of this right now i think from a larger perspective you know the idea like well if we just talked about the white ones then this wouldn't happen no absolutely not right right (laughs) yeah i'm just talking about like the way in which people process this and why they might be defaulting to an idea of right. like white supremacy can only mean a white officer and mm-hmm. and a black victim. You know, like I think that. Uh, well, and it's like historically, it makes so much sense, as you were saying, like that iconography that, you know, that feeling, it's just that's what we've done in our in American history. And so it makes sense. And I've, I saw some people or heard some people saying like, well, maybe that's also a reason that people aren't out in the streets around the Memphis murder because, you know, this, this kind of visual of like the black officers killing a black man, like it's not, it doesn't kind of get at that for people in the same way, you know? Yeah. I, and I don't know. I mean, we're, this is all conjecture. I, I hope that's but. not true because. Me too. Um, the As sickening, like I, I felt physically ill watching. Like the George violence of for, it. But, yeah. And this one is the same thing where it's just like, yeah. Like the level of say, like I, I just keep using the word sadism because I think that's what it is. Just the le- level of like say, like they're they're laughing about it and the cowardice of just holding this guy up and so using his head like a pinata, like uh, for no reason, right? Um, because like when you pull them out of this car, you start tasing, screaming at him with your guns drawn. He had that destiny yeah. to be scared and run away, and then you decide that you're just gonna like pummel him to you know to death. Uh, it's sickening. Anyone who watched it should be sickened and outraged. And I don't, I don't think that that's. I don't think that the race of the officers yeah. is why people are not mad. I think people are really mad, right? I just think that there is some burnout around 2020 yeah. that has taken place, and I think that the idea of going out into the streets again is difficult for some for yeah. a lot of people. I think you know? that's right. Um, I hope. I, I mean, I hope if it is, then it, then it means that the entire framing of it was like a gigantic failure. <laughs> Right. But I don't actually think it is. I I mean, I guess it's hard. Yeah. I mean, I think it's the macroeconomic factors. factors, Totally. Yeah. Right. And it's winter and it's like there's a lot going on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Um, I do kind of wish like I think the white supremacy frame and our understanding of like what that what that says to Americans is like it's about power. You know, it's about power. It's about our history. It's about the way that police and the policing like apparatus has developed over time. Um, I guess I do wish people would use also phrases like state violence and state sanctioned murder. And just, I mean, not that 
people are not thinking that, but I do think that also it's like helpful in that it just frames exactly what's going on and exactly what the relationship of police forces and Homeland Security and the military are to the citizenry, you know, and, um, and it takes a little bit away that interpersonal thing that you're talking about that sometimes becomes very reductive. Um, but all of that is kind of happening at once, you know, in our analyses of this, I think. The interpersonal part, I think, is important in this way, which is that I think that the most powerful way in which people can think about this, and, you know, I had these thoughts too, right, which is just like, can you imagine just being, driving home to see, and then being pulled out of your car, and then you're dead, right, after, um, and that you're not, like, in that, uh, in that these people have the ability and, you know, in some ways the right to treat you in this sort of way, and like they can be anybody, right? Like they aren't yeah. rational actors. They're not like people who are going to like, you know, they're not like robots who follow some sort of code. And once you break the code, like, you know, you're dead, right? Right. And these right. people who can create all the situations, all the justifications, and then they will lie about it just as the totally. Memphis PD did. Right. Um, and that, I think that that's personally very scary to a lot of yes. people. Right. And, and that, um, I think that the more you can expand the, number of people who are afraid of that Mm. you know the the more powerful argument that you can that you can make right and i think that would be an argument for what something like somebody like barbara fields is arguing right like that would be like the type of like from a rhetorical or even from an emotional standpoint you shouldn't limit some people out of feeling afraid especially if those people are also being killed by the police you know um but i don't know it's uh all this is very difficult and i think people are kind of like at a loss on what to say um yeah and uh i know that here in oakland the anti-police terror project Mm -hmm. had like a vigil but um Mm -hmm. it's nothing you know it's nothing quite like two years ago um okay uh (laughs) my my next question was um i don't know i think we should talk a little bit about these special units you know, yeah. um, I think that the, of each each case has like a new specific thing, right? And I think that it becomes part of the conversation. And right now, you know, Radley Balco, I think, has done a lot of work on this, right? Like uh, Radley sort of came to prominence. I don't know if that's the right word, but like he wrote a lot about MRAPs during yeah. Ferguson, right? The tanks that were coming down and the way in totally. which the police were militarized. Um, and this time he's doing a lot of work on these special units, right, that are... Um, in every single city special unit, I think is the one that killed, uh, Amadou Diallo, right. Mm -hmm. Um, in New York city. So it's not like they're new or anything like that. And in Memphis, this is this scorpion unit, um, which is, uh, I don't even know. It's an acronym for something. I read it. And then I was like, like, disgusted by it. it, You know, it's like, yeah, you guys came up with with an acronym and you, you came up with scorpion. It's like a deadly, deadly insect like right. okay you know um yeah. radley's <laughs> argument and i think that you know he's somebody i trust on this is that like they these groups these units are more violent more entitled right they act uh outside of the general police force in a lot of ways right and that a lot of these sort of excessive and almost mind-blowing brutality cases come out of those units so um, i don't know did that add any sort of i don't know did that sort of spark your imagination add anything to 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 the way in which you thought about all this 
Yeah, I think definitely. I mean, as you were saying, I think, first of all, it wasn't a surprise that, you know, the most kind of brutal death would come out of this sort of unit. I think these sorts of units and like SWAT teams, I think, are part of this, too, this whole, um, yeah, kind of militarization culture. As far as I know, these units are also the units where they have they are more likely to have things like quotas for arrests and shakedowns. And, you know, they have sometimes have like monetary goals in terms of recovery, et cetera. So all of the sort of worst I think tendencies of law enforcement get encapsulated in these units. And um, I think what's um, very telling also is that, so it, like in, from what I've read about um, Chief Davis in Memphis, she basically created this unit like last year or a yeah. year and a half ago or so in response to a rise in property crimes. And they disbanded it like right after this news came out. And, and I think it, what, what that speaks to, to me is like also like the flimsiness and how like actually unnecessary any sort of like quote unquote special law enforcement is like generally they're, they're more, I guess, like in the vein of like initiatives or like, you know, kind of pushes to do more and to be more aggressive and more cruel as opposed to any sort of like skills based thing that you need in policing. Like they, these things tend to be more like on the, I guess, like in the vein of gimmicks. Right. Is my impression. Um, so, yeah, I think it's um, it just it just like I think for me added to like the painful kind of absurdity of the whole situation and how unnecessary all of this stuff is. Right, And there's just a long history of this type of unit yeah. acting in this sort of way. And exactly. there's a group called the Riders, I think. And I think much like uh, Darwin Bond Graham, who's a local oh, yeah. journalist He's around excellent. here, he, he wrote a book about this group or that touches on this group and you know, they're the same thing. They just go rob people. You know, like they, they do things that like, for example, there Justin Fenton's book, you know, um, yeah. what, what was it called? We own the night or the HBO show with, um, we own the, we city. Own the city. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like things where you're just like, is that real? And then you're like, I yeah, know. it's very real. <laughs> you know, like they're just robbing people and they're just beating people. They're killing people. Um, and I think that it is, yeah, I don't know. I I was not surprised at all. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I do think like there is a type of way in which those groups, when people get together, and the sort of you know entitlement and the totally. you know we're going to bust heads. That's why they got us here. We got all the headbusters together. Mm-hmm. Of course, that leads to a to a culture and a level of of like inhumaneness that that you saw. Um, yeah. But I don't think that nor do I think you're saying this, that getting rid of these units is going to make these things stop. Not at all. Know? Because also they're, yeah, exactly. Because they're also just the regular force. You know? Right, right, right. <laughs> they're like, just plucked so, out for something temporary and they can be stuffed back in. Yeah. It's a lot of them is just like the police chief responding to the mayor saying, we got to do exactly. something. And they say, and we've they created create the scorpion something. unit, exactly. you know, yeah. and then they just like get seven yahoos in there totally. and then those seven yahoos go do something, you know? And I think some recent, like, I think there was a ProPublica investigation in some other places. Some of the recent reporting on Navy SEALs, I think, also speaks to this. It's this whole thing around creating this culture of a quote-unquote elite situation or specialized situation. And as you were saying, it draws a certain crowd or inculcates a kind of culture into a normal crowd um, that just has, like, really disastrous consequences. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's like, they. I don't know. I, I imagine that a lot of these units will probably have feel a lot of pressure right now and yet i don't think that they're going to get rid of them nor do i think that it would do that much but i do think 
that Radley and other people's reporting on this is vital in that it sort of shows the culture of the police, right? That they would pull people together in this sort of way. Um, that there would be people who felt like they were above even normal police officers in terms of how far they could go beyond what they're allowed to do. Right. Yeah. And that there's a lawlessness about it. You saw with right. the LA Sheriff's department reporting, right. Um, yeah. That, that, and that I, I, this is such an old story, right. I like know. these units have always been, they always, they get caught. Sometimes they don't get caught, you know, investigative journalists go in, they figure out everything about it. And then, the next story happens and then you realize, oh yeah, you know, like they're, I don't know, it's like a click at school or something like that. You totally, know? yeah. <laughs> like, a bully gang. Right, yeah. right, right. That's what it is, like a bully <sighs> gang. Um, that's everything you saw. It was just, you know, I don't know. Like I, I just like from my human perspective, you watch somebody hold somebody who's handcuffed and while somebody else beats them and that's what the first thing you think, you know? It's like yeah. what a coward and like what, like what is this person is a bully in every every facet of their life, right? Mm-hmm. To to be able to do something like that is disgusting. Um, all right, the one thing I want to ask you about here specifically is like there's a narrative out there right now um, that is well, <laughs> there's many versions <laughs> of this, right? the The worst oh, one is basically like this: is what you get with affirmative action, right? Oh my <laughs> um, god. <laughs> um, and then there's an argument out there that is essentially arguing that like, hey, because none of these police forces have enough police officers, they're having to call from like people who are not qualified. Now, this was not true of the people who, you know, the five officers in Memphis, right? Yeah. Um, people are just lying about it, right? But um, because they're not recent recruit, they weren't recruited yesterday. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and um, you know, I, this is something I have thought about and I've written about, which is, you know, I think I've even talked about it on the podcast, which is that there's this ad, like the Oakland police department is recruiting people. And as part of the recruitment, they say, you don't have to, you don't have to live here to be a great, to love Oakland. Like, can you just describe this video? Cause I hadn't seen it until you sent it. And it is like almost unbelievable to see. Yeah. It's like a slick, I look, they play it during Sacramento Kings games, which is so, I just like, can't get over that. (laughs) That's why I've seen it 500 times and it's like locked in my brain. But, um, yeah, it's like, Hey, Oakland PD needs officers, you know? And, um, that's basically it, you know, come join the police force. And, uh, (laughs) Like what it is essentially saying, I think implicitly, right? It's very slickly produced, as May pointed out. It's like out. it also feels like a music video because, right, right, yeah, yeah, it has like a hip hop beat under it, and there's right. like all this like B roll of like palm trees. It's really soft lit, so it's yeah. very, yeah. it's very kind of weird. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. It is kind of like a '90s uh, West totally. Coast rap video. At that time. It's really <laughs> kind of troubling. Yeah, um, and all they need is like uh, the police officers in an El Camino or something like that. And they'll <laughs> exactly. gotten the, the whole, we'll put like it in the show champagne notes. or something. Um, anyway. It's also 13 minutes long. It's now so the, long. The video, yeah. the, obviously the version they show it right, during the commercials, the Kings game is like a minute long. Yeah. But during that commercial, they do say the thing, Hey, come to Oakland right now. This is the context of this is that Oakland has been desperately trying to uh, recruit police officers. Right. And they say, Oh, we don't have enough, uh, Mm-hmm. Police officers. We don't have enough police officers. And the very progressive mayor, Shang Tao, who was just elected, right? Yeah. I think by 600 votes or something like that, right? <laughs> wow. Um, she 
one of her platforms in getting elected was basically, hey, I'm going to restock the police academies and we're going to have more police officers, right? So the most progressive, this is very progressive in every other way, so wild. supported yeah. by labor, et cetera. So my fear for that period of time was that like, they're going to get a whole bunch of people coming into Oakland who don't live in Oakland who are, and they're going to be so desperate to find these people. They're not going to not hire these people, right? And there's just going to be like some horrible cops out there now, you know, um, much, much worse than, than like whatever, right? Like you can imagine, like that's what happens when you have kind of like a, well, we got to hire somebody, you know, and then somebody comes and say, Hey, here I, here I am, you know? Um, I don't know. Does that, does that worry you at all? Like, you know, like I think that the statistics on in big cities around sort of police retirement, they're all very contested right around police Uh quitting and police, police retiring. I think they're also reflected in generally like uh, people aren't civic workers. It's a huge problem in Oakland and San Francisco, right? Mm-hmm. People just aren't working for the government in any sort of capacity anymore. It's part of this real problem with the homeless response as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Does that, do you have that fear at all? Right. That like the police will somehow get worse through this. I think, well, so the first question in response to your question that I always am thinking is like, how many cops does a place need? You know, when we talk about like a labor shortage in policing, like what does that mean? How do we know that we have the right number of cops? Like is, and I think it's like an unanswered question, but like I'll set that aside for a second. I think on this question of, do you get worse candidates when you put out calls like this? And are we in a crisis, whatever the cause of like that? I guess my answer is, I don't know, except there does seem to be good reason to think that people who don't live anywhere near the situation, the place that they're policing, like that's bad, that you shouldn't have an entire police department that like, this is the whole stereotype in New York City that everybody lives in the suburbs and they don't really care about the city, right? And they're just coming into the city and they think everyone in the city is disgusting and therefore they treat us accordingly. And And I think like that is like intuitively and it seems like empirically, I had looked at this like a long, long time ago to have some merit to it. But I think what's really, really hard about this conversation is we actually don't know what really makes a good cop if we even subscribe to the notion that there is a good cop. Right. So I don't, you know, and I think like obviously the right wing is saying that nobody wants to be a cop because of people like us because we were on the streets in 2020 and, you know, we've made life uncomfortable for them, blah, blah, blah. I don't know, you know, again, as you just said, there are lots of reasons why people aren't taking kinds of certain kinds of jobs right now. Um, But, but yeah, so I think because I have like those questions around like how many do we need, what kind of like personality type or skills set, you know, makes a good cop, if you can even be a good cop. Like, I don't, I don't know how to answer that, but, but sure. Like, I guess, yeah, superficially, like it does seem bad that, you know, they're really trying to stretch requirements. Like for instance, maybe they're trying to stretch educational requirements or fitness requirements or geographic requirements. And the further away you get from kind of this core of like whatever they've identified to make you a good police officer like i'm yeah that probably is alarming given that like the people they think are good are so bad i know it could only get worse (laughs) Um, it it is a good question you know it's like okay what does do we like i think from a very like sort of 
logic brain perspective, right? You would say, well, if a officer comes in and he's less educated and he's less right. trained and he's younger and, uh, you know, and they, they, uh, they have less training, right? Because, and they're put out on the street faster mm -hmm. then they're going to be worse and less humane, right? Is that true? I don't know. You yeah. know? <laughs> Like intuitively, like, it sounds terrible, but yeah. <laughs> intuitive. Uh, like Maddie Glazers wrote a uh, post this week, for example, arguing that like you know actually we need to fund the police more so that they're better, you know, and that that includes mm -hmm. like trainings and stuff like that, and so that they can pay higher, so that you right. know this is this a very is market other... brain take, right? Totally. That um, if you pay more, then um, then better people will come in because it'll be more competitive and right. the market will make it yeah. better. Right. Like there'll be more competition because wages will be higher. Right. Like, yeah. I don't think that policing works in that type of way. Right. And the, and the reason why I believe that policing doesn't work in that way is that police department budgets are still high. Police salaries are still pretty good, you know, and they're, yeah. and if they're having right. a shortage in these cities, then it proves yeah. that, you know, like something else is going on. Right. And totally. what is going on is what the right says. And it's like, everyone is so traumatized. They don't want to be spit on by protesters or whatever, like sort of nonsense that they're saying. If that's, if that's the argument, if that's happening, then money is not going to solve that. Right. Like it's not right. going to solve that unless you, unless you make it so high, like, so like, for example, the, the Oakland police department, the new mayor, like one of her proposals was to give everyone a $50,000 signing bonus to come be wow. a Oakland police officer. You know? Where was that money going to come from? <laughs> Does that... No taxpayers, but oh, like, yeah. you know, $50,000, like maybe that's not enough. You know, I was thinking about it. I was like, well, $50,000, <laughs> you know, but like, I bet if they increase it to $100,000 that the number of well, people who signed up wouldn't be that high. You know, I bet it wouldn't be that much higher, you know, because really? I don't. Yeah, because I don't think that people like I don't think that people make those types of decisions based on those types of uh, payouts as if they are qualified at this at the at this point to be like an Oakland City Police Department mm, officer, mm -hmm. you know, Um and I think that there are other high paying police jobs that they go to, right? Like one of the yeah. things that, that they found during this whole like police, uh, you know, all the police departments are losing officers, right? Like there needs to be some like nuance and distinctions placed in there. It is true that in large cities, uh, the police departments have less officers than before or having trouble recruiting, right? I think that we can say that that's true. Because people are retiring and they're not being replaced, yeah, and some people are just resigning. Some people are right? yeah. But like academies, like there are a lot of academies that are pretty empty. Like I mm -hmm. think that we can say that. But I think in a lot of ways, what has also happened is uh, that that people are shifting around a little bit, right? Like because there was this like distinction between, like there was this discrepancy between the number of cops that had. Uh, retired or resigned and the total number of cops in America. <laughs> and I think that what they found were people just like going to the suburbs or something like that. Right. So that's part right. of it. Right. But, right. um, but I don't know. I, I, I worry about it. And yet I also find myself like very skeptical, uh, right. in the same way that, that, that you are. Um, and, uh, they're also, you know, like we said before, like other sectors lost, um, lost people as well. Totally. So, um, Everybody's complaining about not being able to hire like every single sector. Right. Right. Um, so I don't, yeah, I don't know. Now, do I believe that like there is no way in which there was any effect on the desire of people to become cops after these nationwide protests? No, there was probably some effect, 
you know, like, of course. That was intentional. Effect, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think protesters wanted that. I know, I know. And then and there so, was like, yeah, I don't know. I think the bad timing was that, like, whatever murder spike that happened, right? I know, um, yeah. Happened yeah. right afterwards. And, right. Um, you know, people are going to draw the conclusions that they're going to draw. You know, right. I'm sorry. It's like going to be very difficult to to do. But um, I don't think that that narrative has anything to do with what happened in Memphis. Mm -hmm. But I do think that in terms of imagining what can happen, like, I think that we're in a very tough spot right now. Jeet here wrote a piece in The Nation this week, and it was about and I, I don't have it in front of me, but I can sort of I think I'm paraphrasing, mm -hmm. you know, fairly when I said that basically he argued that what happened was there was an elite backlash between, you know, Democrats, that was liberals and conservatives both basically being like, actually, this defund thing is crazy, right? Um, we have to support police officers. Now, I think that that did happen on Twitter, and I think it happened in the media. But I don't think that that's what happened. I don't think every voter who voted wanted more policing or whatever is like an elite white person who works in, who works in the media, yeah, right? Like there are sort of voting, um, I don't know, they're like voting trends, but they're also like just straight up candidates or whatever that reflect that. For like, the, like for example, the mayor of Oakland basically being like, I'm pro-cop, right? right? Yeah. Like that is a response to something, right? Um, yeah. none the governor of, the, of New York. Right, the governor of New York. <laughs> Everybody. Um and I, I don't know. I, I think that, that it's a little bit misguided to just locate it within the media, right? I think that, that we are in a place where it is difficult to really get too much traction on any type of like radical policing uh, argument. And I, I, I don't know. I think that that might also be part of the reason why people feel a little bit stuck on, yeah. on, on proposals here, right? Um, except for the abolitionists, right, who are, you know, proven right again yeah yeah do you do you see in california any discussion around uh qualified immunity which for folks just who haven't heard the term it's like basically as it stands cops and other people who are employed by the state and are wielding force can often say um have a very robust defense because of a thing called qualified immunity where they're basically shielded in the way that a state is shielded from from liability. Um, so Jay, I was just curious, like in, in California, if there's chatter about that, because that has been one of the asks around like police accountability. Um, no, I think that, uh, I think Gavin Newsom talks about it, you know, mm -hmm. but Gavin Newsom also talked about single payer healthcare, you know? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I just yeah, think you that guys have it as close as anyone, but yeah, <laughs> I don't think it's like, I, I think it's at some point the argument was basically that this is the most sobering thing I'll say about, you know, this entire podcast. I think there was a period of time where you could say that police unions have too much political clout and that's why all these things happen. The will of the people is different, you know? And I think that the way in which that the truth is that most people are pro police, you know, and that, um, that it is now a pretty diverse segment of the population that is. And that I don't think that that is a surprise to anyone who's very involved in this type of work, right? But it does make the sort of, well, why don't we just do a political thing question really difficult. Um, yeah. I think that that's why you 
had every politician put out a tweet saying this this is horrible i'm appalled you know and yeah. nobody talk about any of the stuff that they'd even right. talk about two years yeah. ago you know there is no and this is why we have to take these things seriously um there is nobody you know there i don't think the democrats breathe the word you know defund i mean if they did they would have been you know yeah. maybe run out of the party right so um I don't know. It's it's. Uh, I think we're just in a place where mm. this is going to be chalked up as like a tragedy, and that the politics behind it are going to be stuck. But that doesn't mean, as we always preach in the show, it doesn't mean that nothing will ever happen. Yeah. It just yeah. means that right now, it is difficult to uh, get immediate results, which is always true. Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate that, and I think, um, like May was May was talking to us about you know, trying to also expand our imagination around what, what accountability means and like, and what the George Floyd protests were about. And it's obviously not just about getting these guys up on charges for second degree murder, but it's about avoiding a situation in which anyone has to die in this kind of situation. Um, right. It, we've, it feels, it feels very far from that <laughs> right now. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to say something, which is like, I don't, the disclaimer is I don't believe really in culturalist arguments, but I keep thinking about this discussion I had over the winter with a family friend in Korea who had never traveled outside of Asia. And, you know, he was asking about the United States and, you know, I said, oh yeah, you should come visit. And I think I was talking about Mount Rainier or the Grand Canyon or something like really wonderful about the United States. And he said, well, I actually want to go to the United States because I want to understand like a, the culture of violence. Oh yeah. Um, he's like, I want to, I like reading about the United States. It seems like a uniquely violent place. And I don't understand why, like why people, there's so much killing and, and I don't know. I've, I like in the moment I felt a little bit like waving my tiny American flag, like, come on, like there's good things <laughs> or also that like, there isn't necessarily anything obviously in our blood and guts that makes us so, but I have to say like, then you have these clusters of weeks where there's just so much senselessness and right. you just think like, there's something going on, you know, there is something and obviously, you know, whatever, this isn't at all unique or new or anything, but, um, yeah, I've just been trying to think about that ever since Monterey Park, I guess. And it's just extended through these latest crimes about what is it about us? <laughs> I think that people are being repeatedly traumatized. And um, I don't know. I think that before this video, I was very much in the, I was very much of the mentality that if you're just like a, if you're just a person whose job it is not to try and process these things, that mm -hmm. it is totally fine and even commendable to not watch these videos, right? Um, especially, I think, if you're Black and that you see just another yeah. Black. Like, there is a snuff film type of element to these God, at this yeah. point that is, like, highly, highly, highly fucked up, right? Mm -hmm. But I did feel like journalists should watch them. You know, especially if you were going to write about it and if mm. you're going to think about it. Right. And then I, I don't know, like it this made me rethink all of that. Right. Like uh, because it was so awful that you just thought, what's the point or. Yeah, I mean, like it's like, what is the. What you know that it's bad, right. Mm -hmm. um, 
And before I think I would have said, you're kind of looking away a little bit. You have to see, mm-hmm. you have to see the brutality for what it is right now. Mm-hmm. I am glad I watched it. Not glad, but you know, I, I think I, I don't yeah. regret watching it, but okay. um, I think that there is a, that, that it, even within people within our industry, I think is just a personal choice. You know, I think at this point, like uh, I think mm-hmm. that we've seen enough violence. We've seen enough people getting killed by the police that, the imagination can fill in what needs yeah. to be filled in, you know, Definitely. and that you don't have to watch somebody die in these horrific ways to feel the fullness of the outrage, yeah. you know, nor should there be special consideration given to those who have watched it and are like, no, actually I'm more right than you are because I actually watched it and it's worse than you can even imagine or something like that. I (laughs) promise you people can imagine horrible shit, right? So um, I don't know. It made me reconsider that quite a Mm. bit because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, before I was like trying, I don't know, you just watch stuff like, you know, we watch like ISIS beheading videos and stuff like that. And you just think it's part of the job. But, um, but I don't know, like this is just, it was just sickening. So um, I did feel like ill. I mean, uh, even just reading the description was so hard, you know, and so I can't imagine like actually sitting down and watching it. But but I take your point on like, yeah, what do journalists like covering these issues? Like, yeah, there might be an added responsibility. Right, right. I don't think, uh, yeah. My point is I don't think there is anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, yeah. right. Your mind has been changed through this. Week. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think so. And, yeah. you know, like I've, I think that feeling almost like a, like you're doing your it's like a type of journalistic like macho that like Maybe, you know, yeah. i don't know i think i subscribed to in the past but mm-hmm. has since in the past five years or so revealed itself to be really fucking stupid yeah <laughs> you know, so, i don't know meet some war That's reporters good. and try and have a conversation <laughs> with them for more than 10 minutes and you know see how that goes you know not all yeah. war reporters actually most of the war reporters i know are cool you know but some of them are just like all right you know, like, what is this? Like, you know, this is just a pissing contest between me and you. And I don't, I don't think, that, I don't think that this needs to really, you know, fall into those types of categories. Um, okay. Uh, well, thank you for listening to, you know, what is a very sad show. Um, yeah. I don't know. This is something that we've talked about quite a bit. Um, are there other conversations that we've had, Tammy, that you think that people should listen to? Um, no, but just wanted to point out that we had, um, we were covering, yeah, Monterey Park and, um, you know, and I guess implicitly Half Moon Bay. And then Jay wrote a great thing on our newsletter. So to look at that and, and maybe just to revisit some of the stuff that we've done on abolition, like with Naomi right. Murakawa. Right, right. That's what just I Just to help thinking, us yeah. think through some of this stuff. Yeah, I think, yeah. yeah. I mean, even if you're resistant to the idea of abolition, I think that her that that podcast specifically is one that people talk to me about quite a bit about it being like really illuminating and and even people who don't agree with her you know and i always say yeah that was a podcast i wasn't on and they're like oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) the rare good episode without jay yeah people people (laughs) almost never happens i think that's the one that's been brought up the most to me you know and i'm like you do realize that i was (laughs) (laughs) oh man um okay well thank you for listening to our show if you'd like to support our show it's five dollars a month at uh goodbye.substat.com or at patreon.com slash ttsg 
pod. Um, you can also email us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or you can get in touch with us on Twitter at TTSGpod. Um, thanks as always to our producer, May Schatz. Um, and uh, yeah, okay, until next week. One,